Philippians 4 and verse 10. Let's pray as you're turning there and then we'll study. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you um, that you've given us your word to instruct us, to enlighten us. If we desire to follow you, your word shows us how. And I pray that our minds would be changed and renewed by your scriptures, that we might think the way that you think, that we might become more like your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as a preacher, um, I like to think that I will preach on most topics. I don't avoid awkward ones or difficult ones. And, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes I'm a bit of a bulldog, really. And I quite like the difficult ones to get my teeth into. Um, but there's one topic I do avoid. I avoid it as much as I can, and that's the topic of money. And the reason I avoid it is simple. It's not because the scriptures are unclear. It's not because I'm in somehow embarrassed or unsure about the scriptures teaching. It's because we as the church, in the broadest sense of the word, have abused this more than almost any other topic. We, have, we are living in an era where multitudes of people stay away from churches because of the people who will stand and say, show me your faith, give me your money. They fly on private jets, have, have you know, mansions, and they live the nice life while the poor people give and give and give to try and somehow relieve their suffering because they're being preached a false gospel of prosperity. You keep giving, you keep showing your faith, and God will prosper you. And that abomination and, and variants of it, more minor versions of it, go on throughout the church. We have churches are renowned for give us your money, make sure you pay your tithe, do this, do that. And the, the requirements biblically can easily be extended into the realms of extortion and exploitation. And therefore, I'm always conscious about teaching it. M my perspective is simple. I preach Christ, I preach the scripture, people are captivated by Christ, and everything that they are and everything they have is Christ's. And that is seen in how they conduct themselves with regards to money. But, the Bible talks more about money than it does about sexual immorality talks more about money than the many other things that we emphasize more and so it's not to be avoided and the, one of the joys of teaching verse by verse through scriptures is that we come to these passages and we can't avoid them or skip them and we're forced to confront and deal with them and to see what God has to say. So having dealt at length in chapter 4 already with Euodia and Syntyche, their battle, their disagreement, and the ways of resolving that, which comes on the back of the entire book, which really is based on this mutual love, he comes to his concluding remarks, his practical ones, and here in verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. At first blush, this looks a little bit rude. He's saying, well, at last you're concerned again. You've revived your concern for me. You weren't concerned, and now you've revived it. About time too. Seems a little bit rude when you look at that first phrase by itself. And, and, and it touches on, and, and, and Paul's rhetoric here, the way he constructs his argument, really points to the fact that thankfulness is a difficult thing. If, if you give me something, and I like what I've been given, it's very hard to strike that balance between being thankful because it's the right thing to do, and being thankful because I'm communicating, yes, and if you want to do that again, that would be very nice. There is often in our thankfulness borderline manipulation of us wanting more, wanting repetition. And on the other hand, of course, if we're not thankful enough, then of course we're taking it for granted or ungrateful. So Paul here strikes the balance. What he does initially is he plays down his thankfulness only to then rhetorically shift and show how thankful he is. And the reason he does it that way will become clear in the following verses. But that's what he's doing. He's saying, look, you, I, I, I'm rejoicing in, in the Lord. I'm grateful to God um, that now at length, so that this is happening now over a period of time, you have revived your concern for me. So there's a period of time where the Philippians weren't supporting Paul, but now they are supporting Paul. And he is rejoicing in the fact that they are now supporting him financially. As will become clear in the context, that's what he's talking about. Now, having said it slightly negatively to start with, you weren't giving, now you are, he then twists it, shifts it round to show uh, that he understands the context. He says, indeed, you were concerned. So it's not the concern wasn't there. The concern's been revived in the sense that he can see it because he's received gifts. But they were concerned, but they didn't have the opportunity. We know from our studies in Philippians that Epaphroditus had been and brought a gift to Paul. Do you remember in chapter 2 there was all that concern because Epaphrodites had fallen sick, even to the point of nearly dying. And there was concern at that point that Epaphroditus had somehow um, failed in his mission. That he somehow was dishonouring in that he'd gone to be a blessing and he'd ended up being a burden. And we talked about that back then. But he'd come and he brought this gift. And he had, in his going there, had, had again given an opportunity for their concern for Paul to be shown with the gift that they were giving. And, of course, by the presence of Epaphrodites as well. So, again, what Paul is doing is reiterating what he was saying in chapter 2, which is, there is no shame in him falling sick. There's no shame on you. There's no dishonouring, which is how the culture would have viewed it. There's no shame or dishonour. He came, and God was sovereign, and God was in control, and the gift was well received. Now, the reason he plays it down in the first phrase then becomes clear in verse 11. And he kind of leaves his main flow of an argument here with this aside in verses 11 through 13. He'll come back to the main argument in verse 14. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
couple of things here. Firstly, here's one of my bugbears about Bible translations. Bible translations, when you translate a particular word, like here in the New Testament, a particular Greek word, you're translating a word into the Bible translation, and it's perfectly appropriate that the same word might be translated different ways in different contexts, because the same word, because of the surrounding words, is communicating something slightly different. And so in English, you're, you're wanting to make that, that uh, what's being communicated clear, and so you might use slightly different English words to translate the same Greek words. But one thing that really bugs me is when we have the same English word translating two different Greek words. So you think, particularly in close succession, you think that the author is saying the same thing when actually he's saying something different. And that's what we have here. If you look at verse 11 again, he says, um, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Then in verse 12, he, taught, he says at the end of uh, verse 12, uh, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he uses the word need twice, 11 and verse 12. Then we come to verse uh, 16. He says, even in Thessalonica, you helped, uh, you sent me help for my needs and then I believe one more time at the end there, uh, my God will supply every need of yours. So we have in English the word need used four times. There's two different Greek words for need. Two different words. One Greek word is translated need in 11 and 12, and then a different word translated 16 and 18. So we'll, uh, 16 and 19 rather. We'll deal with the second one when we come there. For the first word here, need, that we find in verse 11, the word doesn't mean need in the sense of something that you must have that you don't have. If, if God wants you to go from point A to point B, then you need to be able to get from point A to point B. And depending what point A and point B are, it could be a career, it could be a literal journey, it could be an accomplishment. You, you may need things to do that. If, if you're uh, trying to prepare a sermon, you may need a Bible, you may need books. If you're trying to make a journey, you may need transport, be it your legs or a vehicle. There are requirements. That's not what the word here means. That's the other one. The word here means a lack or a shortage. It's kind of like when uh, you go to the fridge because you're making a cup of tea, as I'm sure you people obviously do now with the English influence, you're constantly making cups of tea. And, uh, you know, my wife will occasionally say to me as she goes to the fridge and she makes a cup of tea, pulls out the milk to put the milk in her tea, because that's what you're supposed to do with tea, by the way, Americans, you put milk in it. Um, she gets milk, milk in the tea and there's a little bit of milk left and she says, oh, would you mind popping out and getting some more milk? Do we not have any milk? Yes, we have milk, but we only have a little bit of milk. We need more milk because very shortly, because we're an English household, there'll be more cups of tea and we'll need more milk for the tea. So, so the word here need in verse 11 is really talking about a lack or a shortage. You know, you know when you drive with those people and the, and the uh, fuel light goes on in the car? And they say, oh, don't worry, we've got a good 50 miles, I know my old car. 
You know, that kind of need. You're sitting there in the car thinking, I really hope they do know their car. I really hope they do. Because we're going to need to stop for some, for some gas at some point. Why? Because there's a need. It's a lack, it's a shortage, right? If they don't know their car very well, and then you end up with the car stopping and not being able to go anywhere, then you have a requirement. There is something that you required that you don't have. That's the second kind of need that he's talking about. So that's just to clarify that, although it's in the English the same word, that there's two different things he's speaking of here. And I think that makes more sense as we understand the passage. So with that in mind, let's read verse 11 again. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. We could there say in shortage. Not that I am uh, speaking of being in shortage. Not that I'm speaking of lacking things. That would be the context of what he's talking about there. For I have learned in whatever situation to be content. And that's where Paul sort of pulls back. So let's take the big picture here. Paul's saying, look, you guys weren't supporting me financially. Now you are supporting me financially. That is a huge help. That I'm, I'm rejoicing greatly over that. And then he says, but I don't need it. He, he's saying that for a very important reason, as I think will become clearer. But he's saying, look, I am not saying thank you to you because I'm relying upon your gift. There is a sense in which Paul, as, as he goes through this passage, is making this very clear. There is a separation between the giver and the receiver. The Philippian church are the givers. They've given a financial gift to go with Epaphroditus to go to bless Paul. Paul is the receiver. But what Paul is saying is there is a gap in the middle, and that gap is God. And here's how it works, okay? This is where I wish I had a whiteboard. I could visually do it for you. But if, if you think, one side giver, one side receiver, Boom, barrier in the middle, and that barrier is God. So if, if God's the barrier in the middle, if you're the giver on one side, the giver gives, and they're giving to God. What Paul does with that money is irrelevant. If they felt that God was telling them to give to Paul, give to Paul. That isn't to, to excuse the obscenities of the false preachers that I spoke about at the beginning. That isn't to say that if you give to a preacher and the next thing you know he's flying around on a private jet, that you don't say, hold on a second, is this really who I should be giving to? Because you should be thinking that. It's to say that how successful Paul's ministry is, the direction that God leads Paul in ministry, what Paul considers to be something that he needs to, a shortage he needs to fill, something he needs to replace, something he needs to do, that, that's not, that just shouldn't be there. There is this barrier. You give to God. And Paul is in ministry, and so Paul is, is given support, and then he goes and does ministry with the support he's given. There is that barrier. But, but in the context here, it's, it's more important the other way around. But what Paul is saying is, look, from the receiver, the receiver is receiving from God. So Paul here in this text is trying to say to this church, look, God 
will make sure that my needs, the latter sense, requirements are met. If I have shortages, not enough milk in the fridge, petrol about, uh, the gas in the car about to run out, then God's going to supply those needs. On this occasion, he supplied those needs through you, and I'm rejoicing greatly in the Lord. Not in the Philippians. In the Lord. Because he's met that need through you, and I'm grateful for you, and I'm grateful that you've met those needs, but you're not the one I'm looking to to provide my needs, to provide my shortages, to help me out. I'm looking to God to do that, Paul is saying. And so his thankfulness to them is, as I've said, he's worded it quite carefully. He's tempering it by making sure they understand that the requirement from his perspective is not on them. It's on God. And the way Paul deals with that is he says, he says, I'm not speaking about being in shortage because, this is why I'm not saying I'm in shortage. Oh, I desperately need this, I desperately need that, so I need you to give. And churches do that all the time. We, we need this and we've got a shortfall, so we need you to give. We, were here, we had the conference here last weekend, which was wonderful, uh, by the way, for those who weren't able to attend. And one of the, and finally, since the conference, I've started, I picked up Arnold's biography and I've started reading it. I've known him for years and years and I've listened to his testimony and read his short biography, but I haven't read the full one. I'm reading through it. But one thing that, that characterized his life is simply this. Here's a guy who, because he comes from an ultra-Orthodox Jewish background, when he, when he committed to Christ, he was ultimately kicked out of the family home. And he was left with nothing. Right, you finished high school, off you go. Kicked out of the state, in fact, so that he wouldn't embarrass the family and de be detrimental to the family business. And so he go, wants to study the Bible, so he gets a place at a college, at a Christian college. But he needs money to go to the college. So he signs up and he gets a, a bill for the first you know, semester, and he hasn't got any money for it. He was studying for eight semesters, and for seven of the eight, the college gave him back money at the end of each semester because he more had been given than was required for his course. The exception was the final semester when it was exactly the right amount of money to wrap it up. And he has had a policy. This is why he came to do the conference with us, because we didn't have to pay anyone for him to come. He has a policy whereby he comes, he tells you about his ministry, if you want to give, give, if you don't want to give, don't give. Done. He says, I will go to God with my needs. We will never say in our ministry, hey, we need this or we need that, we're getting a special offering for this and a special offering for that. It doesn't ever happen. We go to God with our needs. Do we need money? Yeah, we need money. If you want to give, here's how you do it. But we're not going to ask you for anything. We go to God with our needs. And his entire life has been characterized by that. And I look at that, and I am bowled over, and I am mesmerized, and I am deeply impressed. But I'm also humbled and convicted. It's a difficult thing to do. But when you learn that lesson, then like Paul, you can learn to be content. Does that mean that he went through college having all the latest let's say iPhones and stuff, but of course they weren't available then, but you know what I mean. All the latest gadgets and tools and everything that he wanted. No, he had to make do here and he had to make do there. 
But what he did is he recognized that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and that God is more capable of providing than we could possibly imagine. There's one uh, well-known secular, um, mostly secular, contemporary band says, the God I believe in ain't short of cash, mister. And there's a lot of truth to that. God can provide whatever needs we have very capably and ably. So Paul is saying, look, I've learned to be content in these different situations. And he expands on that in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, I want to focus on what the passage is saying in context here, so I'm going to get the elephant in the room out of the way right now, and that's verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If there was ever a verse that when you remove it from its context means something completely different to what's being said in the context is this verse, and it drives me batty just drives me mad constantly. You guys, most of you guys know I run a lot, and so in running circles, I see Christians quoting this the whole time, and it does drive me nuts. It really does. You know, they'll have a good race, and they'll break their best time ever, and they'll say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or hashtag Philippians 4.13, and all of this kind of stuff. And I want, if you can do all things, why didn't you go another minute faster? Why didn't you break the world record? Why didn't you break the world record by two minutes? Why not by ten minutes? Why not miraculously appear at the finish line as the gun goes off? Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You see, when you think it through, it becomes ridiculous. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can do everything. He's not saying that, the, that whatever it is that you think that you, you, you can't do, actually you can because God can make you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, in the context. The context is talking about God's provision in ministry. We've seen that, right? The context is about the gift of the Philippians, and the context is about the fact that when the Philippians provide, and he is abundantly provided for, as we'll see, or when the gift doesn't come, and he's struggling to get by, that in all of those different circumstances, God is still in control, and God has met not his needs in the first sense, shortages, but his needs in the second sense, requirements. Those needs have been met. And therefore, he is able to do what he's supposed to do. I need to do this for God, but I really want to have this, but I haven't got this, and I can't get this, so I don't think I can do this as well as I would. Well, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's the context of it. The context is, God is able to provide, this is what he has provided, thus it's sufficient. And if that means that you're lacking shortages, low milk, low gas, that kind of, that, that, that shortage lacking word, if, if you're in that situation, then there's enough for you to do what Christ has called you to do. On the other hand, if you have an abundance, then there's enough for God to, do, uh, for you to do what God has called you to do. And that then leads, when we 
I could, get, I could get lost on a rant on verse 13, but we'll leave it there. That's what it means in context. But coming back to verse 12 now, that, this is what he's then saying. Is he's saying, look, whether God leaves me in a situation of abundance or whether God leaves me in a situation of shortage, I can be content with that. Now, I know what you're thinking right now, because I'm thinking it too, all right? It's like, I need Christ to strengthen me when there's shortage. But when there's abundance, that's not a struggle. Bring on the abundance, Lord. That's good. More abundance. More, Lord, more, Lord. We'll have, we'll have that abundance stuff, you know? Why is he saying that? Well, if you're thinking that way, as we're all prone to do, you're not thinking biblically. And the point that Paul is making about contentment in abundance and in shortage is something that is a very important point for us to get our heads around. Now, for that reason, if you just keep your finger in Philippians 4, we're back there in a moment, but just turn with me just a few books ahead to 1 Timothy and chapter 6. As you're turning there, those who've been coming to our evening studies, you'll remember we were in Mark chapter 10 not that long ago, and we saw the story of the rich young man who was living a, a pretty good life and doing pretty well. And, and, and Jesus was like, well, you know, there's something you're not doing here. You need to give all your money to the poor and then come and follow me. And the man went away sad. And Jesus, at the end of that passage, he said to the disciples after the man walked away sorrowful, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, but I just want, you don't even have to look at me, I just want you to hear those words. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, as I said when I taught Mark 10, it's not like that man, it's not like that man is a model in the sense that, hey, every one of you, give all your money away, and then you can be a Christian. That's not what the passage is saying. Here is a guy who was able to live a fairly decent life, do things that were nice and good. Why? Because he had an abundance. Sacrifice is easy when it's not sacrifice. When you have much, you give much away, you can still be better off than those who had little to begin with. Coming up to chapter 12 in Mark, where we'll deal with the widow's might, and that will be interesting in that regard. And that's the Mark 10 passage is where the whole context is of the, the, the camel through the eye of the needle. You know, he's exaggerating for sure, but the point is, if you're rich, you've got a real hurdle to overcome to become a Christian. Because following Jesus is about letting go. And we don't like to let go of our money. And really, the problem is the same. The problem is the same whether we have money, and lots of money, or whether we have very little money. The problem is the same. What is the problem? The problem is we want money. We want money we don't have, or we want money that we have. Or usually, both. And that's the problem. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6. In the context of those who are abusing teaching, and uh, doing so for greed. He says in verse uh, 6 of chapter 6, 
Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Paul's using that same word again about content, being content. Godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into this world and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. There's your principle to start off, okay? Or two principles. Firstly, the goal is godliness accompanied by contentment regardless of circumstances. That's the goal. That way, if you're rich, oh, I'm rich. If you're poor, eh, I'm poor. Because the pursuit of godliness is unaffected either way. Okay? My second principle there is simply, we, the reason for that is that we come into the world with nothing and we leave with nothing. You gather all your toys, big deal. You've got to leave them behind. But what you don't leave behind is the rewards that you gain for the godliness and contentment. I want to get back to Philippians, so moving on. And by the way, that's, a, that's an allusion, a reference to Job chapter uh, 1 there. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And that's an allusion to what Jesus says in the Gospels. In Matthew, where you remember he talks about uh, um, to uh, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then these other things will be added unto you. The other things in context is not the latest phones, the latest computers, the nicest car, the vacations. The, the other things is food and clothing. Possibly you could stretch it to a roof over your head. Possibly not, depending on how you view the context. But that's, that's what he's talking about. He says, if you've got food and clothing, well, that will be content. He says that very clearly. Look, if, if you have enough to live, you have enough to serve God in whatever way he's enabled you to serve him. And then in verse, uh, verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That is powerful, guys. Powerful. You know the scary thing about that verse? Is you can be poor and still fall into temptation. Still be caught in the snare. Why? Because the only need here is the desire to be rich. If you are rich, the desire to remain rich is a sin. If you're not rich and you want to be rich, the desire is a sin. It's the desire that is the issue here. Snare, senseless, harmful desires, ruin, destruction. These are pretty powerful words. Paul is warning Timothy as he goes into this important role of ministry as Paul leaves to, to be with Christ shortly. He, he's warning him, this is just a whole area where you need to be right. And he tells them why in verse 10. He tells him why. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from them, the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If we're not content with our life, with our circumstances, with our belongings, with our bank balance, with the situation that we're in, with the people around us, with the circumstances of life generally, if we're not content, that can lead us to resentment, to bitterness, to hatred of, of God, ultimately. 
The love of money, the desire for money, leads to so many different evils, so many different problems. It's a hindrance. It's not helpful to God for you to be rich. You, you need to understand that. It's not helpful for God for you to be rich. God can, God can raise up money however, you know. God's sovereign. He doesn't need you. What he needs is your heart. And the love of money, again, whether you don't have it or do, that love for money, that desire to become rich or to remain rich, that love is the thing that will distract you from godly living more than almost anything else. Because it completely messes with your priorities. And many have left the faith as a result of that whole thing. So back to Philippians 4. That's why he's talking about contentment. And that's why he says, look, I've learned to cope with plenty. You just, just think for a second about the Apostle Paul's life, okay? Think about his life. Think about what he says in 2 Corinthians, where he almost brags about all the shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings. Think about the times when he was imprisoned, forcing him to minister through word so that we end up with the epistles like the one we're studying today. You think of all the hardship that Paul had in his life, and you think if God made his life more comfortable, how much less of a ministry he would have had. How much less of a man of God he would have been. And yet, what do we all want? Comfort. The goal, friends, is not comfort. If you're going to follow Jesus, get your head around that now. The goal is not comfort. It's contentment. Moving on to verse 14. Yet... Where he comes back now to his main argument from verse 10. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Yes, he has been in trouble. Yes, at this point in his life, he has been in need. He has had shortages. He has been lacking, been low on things. It's been a struggle. That's normative for Paul. And it was kind of them. That was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. So he's, you see he's constantly to and fro to get the balance here, you know? I don't want to puff you up too much, but I'm grateful. I can do without it, but it's good to give it. You know, he's just trying to strike that balance constantly. And he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. This is great. By the way, if you, ever, if you want to be a writer, this is Paul's rhetoric, just brilliant here. He says, no church has supported me. Is that true? Except you. And so what he's saying here at this point in his ministry is he's saying that in the beginning of the gospel, when he left Macedonia, at that point, from that point, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. The giving and receiving here in context, I think, is clear that they give to support Paul's ministry and Paul gives to them in his ministry, which isn't giving them money back, that's Paul ministering in the sense of being accountable, you know, them being accountable to him, him writing like they are here. And to me, this verse, so it's kind of an aside and people don't really focus on it, so much of this book now makes sense. 
I have pointed out to you guys right through this study, as we go on through Philippians for months and months and months, I've pointed out to you every time that there has been affection. And I've said to you, this is the most affectionate of all Paul's writings. He clearly loves these people. He has this bond with them. And part, surely part of the reason for that is that when nobody else, no, not nobody else in the sense of no person, but no congregation was saying, let's put together an offering to give to Paul to support the work he's doing, even when he's not here with us. When no one else was doing that, they did. They did it. They stopped doing it for a bit. Now it's revived again, and they've done it again at least on one, if probably more occasions, because he talks about the length of it back in verse 10. And that cre creates a bond. And so here he is shifting again. It doesn't matter. I don't need it, but I'm grateful. And then he says, but only you have done this. And there we see the bond of affection that Paul has, where these people have been there for him when others haven't been. And he is grateful for that. And he loves them for that. And he writes from his heart to help them for that. You know, I wonder, we talked about how the book has built up through this theological foundation of loving one another to the incident between Yodia and Syntyche. And we talked about how that wasn't a theological disagreement. It was simply a, a squabble and Paul is trying to show them how to resolve that because it's affecting the whole church. I wonder whether he'd have even done that with other churches. Would every church where there were squabbles, would he be saying, hey, you and you, by name, let's sort it out, here's what we're going to do. But he does to the Philippians. He has a bond. They were the ones supporting. And remember, the gift is not a case of, we'll send it via PayPal, or I'll put a check in the post. The gift is somebody travelling on foot with physical money with them, a large distance, probably hundreds of miles, many days of journeying, to give money at great risk to themselves. If anyone knew they had that money, they'd almost certainly be attacked. To take that to them, and then when they get there with the gift, they're there bringing the news of the church, they're there show, sharing the love, the messages that people have, what's going on at the church. That's a bond right there. That's a bond. And so Paul is grateful for that, that they alone have done that. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Two things to note here. Firstly, as I've said, he's now in a different area, ministering to a different church. Hey, Philippians, I'm done being with you and helping you. I'm now going to go and be with this church and help them. Yeah, but we're not done with you, Paul. We're going to keep giving to you. Isn't that great? That's what they were doing that nobody else was doing. I, I, I think that the church at Thessalonica would have helped him while he was in Thessalonica, but no other church was doing it after he left, and that's what they were doing. The other thing to note here in verse 16 is this is where the, the word need shifts to that different Greek word. We're now away from lack and shortage, and we're now talking about actual requirements. He's saying this, by using a different word in the Greek, this is why I wish it was translated differently. He, by using a different word in the Greek, he's indicating something different. He's not saying, you met my shortages. I've got enough milk in the fridge. My car's now filled up with gas. What he's saying is, is I had a requirement. There was stuff that I needed to do ministry 
that I couldn't have done the ministry that I did without that, and you've provided for that. It wasn't something that I was lacking in or short of. It was something that actually I required to be able to do ministry. And you provided it. How do we know if we have a requirement for ministry? We ask God to meet it, and if he doesn't, then it wasn't a requirement, was it? Simple as that. It's hard, but it's true. But Paul, looking back, can say, I was able to do what I did in ministry because of your gift, and therefore, now retrospectively, I could see that that wasn't simply a desire, though it may have been a desire. It wasn't simply a shortage, though it may have been a shortage as well. It was actually a requirement because the gift enabled me to do something I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, and the fact that you provided it means that God was clearly wanting me to do that. God met my need. That's what he's saying. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I don't need the gift from you. I've learned contentment. You provided the gift. I could do things I otherwise couldn't do. Therefore, it was clearly a requirement. It's what God wanted me to do. But he's saying here, look, I don't need the gift for me, but you need to give the gift for you. And that's what he's saying. He's saying the fruit that increases to your credit. You can go through your life wealthy. I don't mean wealthy living up in big mansions on the hills of Glendale looking down at everyone below wealthy. I'm talking about wealthy in the sense of you don't know what it is to get to the end of a week or a month or whenever your paycheck comes and not know if you're going to have enough food for the last few days. You don't know what it is to not know if you're going to be able to go somewhere or do something or you're just going to struggle with the basic necessities of life. You go through life in comfort and in ease. You might go through your entire life never really understanding what it is to struggle. And because we've been taught, I'm not sure by church, or even by culture specifically, but more by implication. Because we've been taught that comfort trap trumps contentment. We've always made sure that we hold back enough for our own comfort. And what we're doing is we're ensuring that we're not getting credit for eternity. This is where I kind of get itchy because I don't want to be the preacher telling everyone to sell everything they have and give it away. I don't want to be the preacher pushing hard on giving. But I, I have to teach the text here. And the text is this. You hold back from giving, you hold back from blessing. The blessing, obviously, of the person you're giving to, but you hold back on blessing for yourself. Look, do you, do you understand? If you're lucky you might get close to 100 years of life. I have to say, in most places, you say three score years and ten. You can't do that in this church because we have people who seem to have longevity records in this church. But, you know, you might get to 100 years of life. Do, do, you, do you understand that before that 100 years, there was another 100 and another 100 and another 100 and another 100? 
You're, you're looking at 20 of those 100 years back to the time of Christ. You're looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years going back before then again. Your 100 years is a blip in history. We're going to enter fairly soon the two or three week period that we call winter in Southern California. When you can get up in the morning and go and see your breath and it'll go. That's your life. Oh, there. Gone. That's what your life is. But when that life ends, our life goes on because we go to be with him. And the fruit, the credit that he's speaking of here will go with you. It will be passed through the fire and be purified of any impure desire or motive you had and you'll be rewarded for all eternity. What does that mean specifically? I don't have a clue, but it sounds good. And yet we're constantly holding back, holding back, holding back. Got to be comfortable, got to hold back, got to be comfortable, got to hold back. Now, I'm not saying that. I, I, am, I am the last preacher on the planet that would do a you all need to give more thing. I think we do great here at this church for the people we have. So I'm not saying that. But it's my responsibility to teach the text and say, don't be naive. If you hold back thinking that you're saving something for yourself, you're actually holding back something from yourself. You're preventing God from having your whole heart. You're holding back on blessings that you could have. You're thinking that this life is important when it's really not. Give yourself to God. And what is clear from 1 Timothy 6, from this passage, from, from the Gospels, from a multitude of other passages, is what you do with your money says volumes about your heart. And I don't want to go past this verse without drawing attention to what it's saying, which is that the giving is the fruit that comes to our credit for all eternity. He says, I have received full payment and more. Full payment, complete payment, literally. In other words, this gift from the Philippians and this is the kind of thing where you kind of don't see, I think, sometimes clearly in the text at first reading what's going on contextually. What he's saying here is simply this. He's saying that I was in, I was in shortage, that first kind of need, lacking. You've now given me this gift and now I have complete payment. In other words, he's now in a time of abundance. Paul has now shifted from lacking to abundance. He's actually gotten beyond what he needs for his requirement. He's probably plotting a trip to somewhere else once he's out of house arrest to go and do missionary work somewhere else. He's thinking, oh, I could travel there for a month or so now. I've got enough money for that. He, he's now got more than he needs, in a sense. And more. I am well supplied. You see, he's emphasizing this. Full payment, more, well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, so in other words, this gift has really pushed him into a different category financially than he was in previously. And uh, 
you know Paul, none of it's going to be going into savings for retirement. He's looking to spend that money straight away on missionary work, no doubt. But here's the point that he wants to make about this. He says, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, I haven't got time to go back to my Old Testament references, but that's the offering, uh, reference to the sacrificial offerings of the Old Testament, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, we're back to that barrier. Giver and receiver. God's in the middle. You've given me a gift. You're the giver, I'm the receiver. I've got the gift, I'm now blessed. I now have abundance, I now have more. I'm now well supplied. But what's happened is a sacrifice and an offering to God. The gift went to God. I've been blessed by it, but the gift went to God. That's what it was, it was a gift to God. Not to me, but to God. But you're doing it through providing for ministry. And the... I'd, I'd like to spend some more time on that, but we're out, we're out of time, and I want to finish this, this section. He says, and this is the principle at the end, and this is a verse you can take out of context a bit. It makes more sense in context, but it stands as a nugget, a principle that really sums so much of this up. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippian church had just given to Paul of such abundance. Their giving, he describes in the previous verse, as a sacrifice. In other words, let's understand sacrifice. That now means that there's stuff that they would like to do with their money that they can't do because they've given it to Paul. as a sacrifice. And... He says, you need to understand this. Everything that you need, second sense, requirement, everything that you need to do in ministry, everything that God's calling you to do, you can still do it. The gift that you've given to me, it might not allow you to have an, uh, that extension or, or to, to, to take the extra vacation, or to have the extra car, or, or to stock the fridge up with quite as much as you'd like. It may not allow for all of that, but everything that God has for you, you will still be able to do. This giving hasn't hindered God's work at all, which boils down to that central question. Are we trying to make our will be done in comfort, or are we trying to make God's will be done in sacrifice? But God's pockets are deep. He will supply every requirement of yours according to his riches in glory. Or literally, I think a better translation, his glorious riches. God, when, when Paul says glorious riches, in any other context, you're thinking immediately, Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. You're thinking of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And it's fascinating to me that Paul uses the same terminology here when he's talking about something that clearly contextually is financial. He's saying, God's riches to you don't stop at spiritual things. I'm going to be careful here because I'm not a prosperity guy. But he says, his riches to you don't stop with simply the blessings that you have spiritually they extend to physical blessings but here's the key thing but the blessings of requirement 
The physical blessings to do what it is that God's called you to do. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, you will be equipped and, and be given what is necessary to do that. Cry out to him for him to meet your requirements. And he is able to do that and he will do that. Hence, verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we will close there. I'll pray in a moment, but that, bar a couple of little verses that we'll mention next time, brings to the end our book of study through Philippians. So next week, we will do, which has been my, my habit amongst you since I've been here, we will do a one-week summary of the entire book. I think they've been some of the most valuable sermons I've done. If you missed some of the sermons, you were away for a bit, it's your chance to hear snippets of the passages you might not be so clear to you. It's a chance to give us a good review and an overview of the whole thing in context so that we can wrap it up and then get ready for Christmas sermons. So, uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's try and be here next week for that. But let's pray and uh, thank him now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of your word. And thank you for the riches that you have, that you are sovereign in control of all things. Financial markets and stocks going up and down, you're in control of all things. And you can ably supply all the requirements that we have for the ministry that you've called us to. But God, there is this desire that we all have for comfort, for money, for riches. And it's just so destructive to want what we don't have, to crave what you're not giving us. May you protect our hearts from resentment, from bitterness that might come from a lack of contentment. And may we have godliness and contentment. Be content with our lives. And Father, when you do provide and you do give, may we give you the glory. And may we constantly be seeking who we might bless. May we be givers, not just financially, but in ministry, in love, in time. May we do what you've called us to do, that you might be glorified through us. Amen. Just as we sing now, I wanted to read you one last quote, which I think is really nice. D.A. Carson said this, to live above circumstances, utterly content in Christ Jesus, is to ensure that you will never give up the Christian walk. That's a great line. May we never give up following Christ. May we be content and live above our circumstances.